And open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. On Thursday, uh, or uh, excuse me, on Wednesday this week, I uh, spent the afternoon at the fair as part of the sheriff's uh, public relations uh, booth. Um, if you don't know, I'm a chaplain for the sheriff's office, so I was there with other personnel and uh, talking to the public and and uh, whenever I go, there's always other law enforcement people there. I try to connect with them, and I did that, and gave out a few junior deputy badge stickers and uh, talked with the public. When my time there was done, I joined Sue and, and Stephen Roll and the family and, and uh, did the fair, and boy, the kids had saved up money. They got a, got a bracelet so they could ride all the rides they wanted, and I rode all the rides I wanted also which was zero. <laughs> um, you know, they were going here and going there. And, but I got to tell you, after the abduction and murder of that six-year-old girl a couple of weeks ago over on the Kitsap Peninsula, I was watching our kids like a hawk. You know, where are they going and are they getting right on? And uh, I'm usually a little more, hey, it's their kids, it's their responsibility, whatever, you know. I'm uh, taking it easy, but boy, uh, uh, I was just very concerned. And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, as, as some of your responses indicated, you'd say, yeah, that's right. You, keeping children safe requires vigilance. It requires care and attentiveness. It does not happen by accident. And neither does spiritual safety for us as individuals or us as a church. Spiritual safety only happens when real care and attentiveness are exerted by a church as well as the individuals who are in that church. Spiritual safety is what 1 Corinthians 5 is about follow as I read. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present, him who has, done, has so done this deed, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the thing that we learned when we considered these first five verses last time is this. Being a Christian involves a serious responsibility to care for other Christians. Make no mistake, this text is not about kicking people out of the church. This text is about looking out for other Christians because God has told us to do so. It is our job. We are our brother's keeper. Now, I understand that each of us has an individual responsibility to God. When we stand 
before God someday, either as a believer to be rewarded or as an unbeliever to be judged and sent to hell. Either way, we will stand there individually and we will give an account for our lives. I understand that. But I also understand that God has made it very clear in the Scripture that the body of Christ is not just a collection of individuals. It is a group of people, it is part of the body, trying to help one another be holy. That's why I'm doing this right now. Because I have a responsibility from, the, from God to do all that I can to share God's word with you so you can go out and live in a way that honors him. And you have a responsibility to me to make sure I preach the pure word of God and a responsibility to me as I have to you to make sure that I'm living what I'm preaching. It is, it's not this way and it's not this way, it's this way. And it needs to be this way because we care. And I think you'll see that a little bit more as we continue on today to verse 6. When he says, your glorying is not good. Somehow this sin was going on in the church. And I, I, I don't think it takes real rocket science even 2,000 years later to look at the sin that was going on and saying, that's messed up. And it's doubly messed up that when... Somehow the church as a group was, was glorying or proud or arrogant about this sin instead of mourning, as he said in the first five verses. He says again in verse 6, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? <laughs> he uses an illustration to say uh, a, a really significant truth and that truth that we're going to learn today is this. The failure to remove sin creates increasing spiritual ruin. The word ruin is, a, is, 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 is becoming a, 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 a favorite word for me to describe the impact of sin. Uh, the scripture describes righteousness and sin in its impact this way. Righteousness brings life, sin brings death. But when we use that word death, we always think of the ultimate, which is when our body dies and we go to heaven or hell. And what God is trying to communicate through the words life and death is the quality of how we live now and our eternal destiny. And so I like the word ruin because I think it communicates what sin does in this life right now. The failure to remove sin creates increasing spiritual ruin. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians 5 is clearly the church as a whole, as a group, as a body. But all of the things we're going to understand today need to apply to us as individuals and to us as a church. And the first thing that we need to understand here from what Paul says in verse 6 by God's inspiration, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking in this whole chapter about this particular sin. And so clearly the word leaven is his way, is one of the ways he refers to sin. And what we learn from that is the nature of sin is this, it is never stagnant. The illustration of sin is the leaven. Now, um, the most common word we would use for leavening today is the word yeast. 
But there is a difference between yeast and leavening uh, in the biblical times. And what they would have done to make raised bread, you know, bread that's not crackers, but bread that is, uh, is puffy and soft, is, is what we would call today sourdough. And they would take some ingredients and set it aside and keep feeding it and it would start to grow. And then eventually they'd take part of that stuff and mix it in with their bread dough and it would make a raised loaf of bread. Um, similar to, you know, if you went to the Avenue Bread and you got a rustic Italian loaf, it would be similar to, to something like that. But the, the point of the illustration is when you take that stuff that makes bread raise and when you put it with the flour and water and oil and sugar or whatever you're going to put in there, what happens? It starts to work. Once you mix it, mix it together, it starts to raise the bread. Paul states a very simple truth here about sin and that's, the truth is this, sin cannot be managed, controlled, or limited because it is always active. Like yeast in bread, it's working, it's making things happen. You can't mix the yeast in and then say stop. Oh, I know you can kill it by baking it and so on. I understand the, the baking metaphor only goes so far. But what he's saying is, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump who's the whole lump here the whole church and he says if you mix a little bit of sin that is approved and accepted and allowed into the church it will contaminate the whole church a little leaven leavens the whole lump because sin cannot be controlled or managed it's always active here's a guy who thought he could control sin King Solomon loved many foreign women. You, and if you don't know, you could read the rest of the text, uh, you know, the Old Testament, that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700. 700. King Solomon. Yeah, what else did he do? I have no idea. Can you imagine planning 700 weddings? King Solomon loved many foreign women as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites. Now, if you really know your Bible history, you know that these people were supposed to have been, they were supposed to have been eradicated by God's people when they came into the land. And for sure, they were not supposed to intermarry. God specifically prohibited that. But here's King Solomon he loved many foreign women from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Now Solomon was a really smart guy. Remember, God said, tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. And the only thing he prayed for was Oh, God, give me the ability to, to, to uh, lead your people. And God said, because that's what you've asked for, I'm going to give you that plus a lot more. And the scripture elsewhere calls him the wisest man that ever lived. So surely as time passed, Solomon thought, boy, I am really smart and I really know what's going on and I, I can do things that other people can't do because I am so smart, including marry women that I shouldn't marry. 
He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives caused him to love the Lord his God. No. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Solomon thought he could manage sin. The wisest man who ever lived couldn't withstand the influence of sinful people who he brought into his life. And if he couldn't do it, do you think you're going to be able to do it? Do you think we can do it? No, that's why God says get rid of the, get rid of the sinful influences in your life. St. Joseph Hospital here in Bellingham has worked really hard to create good outcomes for surgical procedures, in part by creating significant processes to reduce the possibility of infection. They give people like me who are going to have surgery a detailed list of everything to do to reduce the presence of bacteria on the day before surgery and the day of surgery. And that includes taking a shower with antibacterial soap, using a clean washcloth, a clean towel, sleeping on clean sheets with clean pajamas, um, getting up in the morning, putting on clean clothes. And when you go to the hospital, there's more processes in place to make sure that as, as much as humanly possible, they get rid of all the bacteria. Now, how many of you would like to go into surgery knowing you're covered in bacteria? Oh, yeah, I can handle it. (laughs) You think? And yet when it comes to sin, we really do want to say, I can handle it. And what Paul is saying by God's inspiration is, you can't. Because sin cannot be managed or controlled. It is always growing. It is always permeating. It's always effective. The undeniable truth is that sin never stops working to infect all who allow it to exist. The only solution is to remove it. John MacArthur put it this way, sin is a spiritual malignancy and it will not long stay isolated. Unless it's removed, it will spread its infection until the whole fellowship of believers is diseased. Recently, I needed to cut some large holes for a project I'm doing for a friend and I needed you know, like an eight and a quarter inch hole in, in a ceiling and it needed to be cut really kind of perfectly the first time. You know, I, I do a lot of good projects but you don't see how many times I redo them along the way before the final product. Well, it looks pretty good. Yeah, it does but it took me 40 hours, you know, to get there but But this is one of those things where I had to cut this hole right the first time, otherwise I was going to be in trouble. And so I thought, well, I'm going to buy a big hole saw. That's the way I buy tools. When I need one, I go and find it. And and I looked online, and, you know, it was kind of expensive, and nothing was available locally. And and I thought, oh, what am I going to cut that hole with and get a nice round hole? And then I went, ding, I have a tool. It's in the drawer. And I went over there, and, and sure enough, I have a tool that looks like this. It's a Craftsman rotary saw, and it's got this little extension. You poke it in, you go, and it cuts a beautiful hole. And I don't know how many years it's been since I used that tool. It's been sitting there in the shelf, 
And I went, oh, isn't that awesome? I finally get to use that tool. I think sometimes we think sin is that way. Oh, I've got this sin, and I'm not going to get rid of it. I'm just going to tuck it in a drawer, and it'll be okay because I'm going to shut the drawer. God says it won't be. It's like yeast. It's going to keep growing. It's going to bubble up out of the door, and it's going to cover your garage, and then your car, and then your house, and then you. Because that's the nature of sin. You can't just put it away. You cannot manage it. You cannot store it and forget about it. God says, purge it out. It will not sit in the drawer unused. We've got to remove it. What happens in the church when sin is not removed? What happens in the church when sin is tolerated? What is the impact of sin? The impact of sin is very simply this. It is always harmful. Now, what specifically might happen in a church? Well, I want to just give you a few examples of that, and the first one is this. Allowing sin turns a church away from the Bible. Listen to what Paul told Timothy, Pastor Timothy, about God's word. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge or teach or enforce the good doctrine that some that they teach no other false doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience and from sincere faith, from which some having strayed have turned aside to idle talk. You understand you're either living in God's truth, in God's way, or you're straying aside into idle talk. When we allow sin, we, we are practically forced to put the Bible aside. Have you ever heard this little phrase? The Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. Now, why would that be? Well, I think in your personal life it goes like this. When you have committed a sin and you know it's a sin, do you want to open the Bible and read how God says that's wrong, you need to get rid of it? Well, no, you don't want to. If you are a disciplined, a mature Christian, you use that daily time in the Lord in part to to give you that reflection, to force you to see that sin and to confess it and to be right with God. Can you imagine in Corinth, the pastor, before this letter arrived, the pastor standing up and preaching against sexual immorality or adultery? How would that have gone over with this brother and sister, so to speak, sitting right in the front row. Allowing sin turns a church away from the Bible. Secondly, allowing sin creates a culture of approving sin. In Paul's instruction to Titus, we read these words, For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you, For there are many, 
insubordinate, idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. Do you understand? What he says here is, if you don't stop wrong doctrine, what happens is it, it goes and goes and grows. Remember the nature of sin? It constantly expands. It constantly moves. It constantly impacts people. What would have become of the churches on Crete if Titus had done nothing? If he didn't appoint elders who loved God and were following his word so that they would lead their churches to love God and follow his word, if that had not happened, what would have happened to those churches on Crete? You know what would have happened? They would have been exactly like the false churches that are all around us today. The churches that approve, approve of sins like abortion. How do we get to a point where a church says it's okay to take the life of your unborn child? You think, how do we get there? How do we start with this Bible 2,000 years ago and get to the point where that is approved of? Well, we got there because somewhere along the line, some churches stopped disapproving of sin and started approving of wickedness. If Titus had not set things straight in Crete with good men and the good truth of God, their churches would have started to approve of homosexuality and homosexual pastors and homosexual marriages just like today. And of course, before any of that, they would have been approving of premarital sex, of all kinds of immorality of divorce of all manner of false beliefs they would have approved of all these things either you stop sin or it overtakes the church the simple truth is here evil company corrupts good habits you know when i was a, when i was a youth pastor which uh, which ended about 35 years ago not 35 30 years ago we used to, one of the topics we would frequently teach on was peer pressure, peer pressure. We don't seem to use that term anymore. We still talk about the topic. But the idea that your friends are going to push you toward things that are ungodly, and we were constantly trying to work on that because that's a real challenge for kids in the public school. The, the majority of kids in the public school are pushing in the wrong direction, and it's not because they get up in the morning and say, how can I ruin the world? It's just because that's the way the world thinks. And so we're talking about that. But you know what? You see this word right here? That's the same word as peer pressure. Culture. Every church has a culture. And the culture is those things that are right, wrong, important, unimportant. And if we don't say no to sin and yes to righteousness, we will create a culture where we go well, you know, what are you going to do? Nothing we can do. And, and we kind of fold our hands. And before long, we have brought ourselves down to the same level as those who don't know the Lord. The third thing that happens, the impact of sin is this. Allowing sin stops the church from preventing the ruinous effects of sin. 
I know these things sound like they're going in a circle, and they are a little bit, but, but think about this. Remember that sin never rests in its impact. In other words, there is, the, there is the doing of the deed that is wrong, but then there are the impacts of that wrong deed. Let's imagine two young people who grow up in our society, our American society, and they attend a church where the word sin isn't used much. These two people begin to date with the common belief of our society, which tells them that romantic love revolves around sexual connection. And in time, they connect physically and get pregnant and unexpectedly. Then they marry unwisely, again, thinking, well, you know, what are you going to do? It's the best we can do. Eventually, they have a marriage crisis, and when they come to the pastor for counsel, he just sort of holds their hands and says, well, these things happen. And so they get divorced. And some people have the audacity even then to talk about a divorce that is friendly and amiable and the very best for the children. And the church feels powerless because they are. Because they've allowed sin to rule. Now, did they do it on purpose? Did they do it ignorantly? I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But the truth is, either at every step of life we are teaching God's word and we are helping people and, and, and supporting them and encouraging them in the struggle to do righteously, because it is a struggle at times, or we throw up our hands, say there's nothing we can do, and then sin becomes the culture of the church. And when that happens, the church has become nothing more than a social club. I know of a church in which there was a woman who had a one-night stand many years into her marriage. She became pregnant. Her husband was a significant leader in the church, and he had surgically stopped his ability to have children before she became pregnant. And so they counseled together with their pastor who encouraged them to keep it quiet and just say the surgery had failed. You know, those things happen. Miracle. They did that. But the woman's life fell apart over the guilt. And the child eventually found out who his real father was and wasn't. And it devastated the people. And then we found out the pastor was living in adultery all the time he was giving that counsel. Breaks my heart to even talk about it. Oh, would it have been hard for her to stand up and say, you know what, I sinned. Yeah, it would have been hard. But you know what would have happened? The people would have said, hey, we forgive you and God forgives you. And they would have embraced her. But of course, if the leadership is wicked, then the culture in the church is wicked. Let me ask you a really serious question, a couple of really serious questions. How much sin should we tolerate in a church? Whose sin should we allow to continue? 
the pastor? Oh, of course not. A significant leader? No. How about a regular person? Well, you know, none of us are perfect. That's a temptation, isn't it? I know of a church uh, down in California where their pastor was n- not really taking care of his family in a, in a fully godly way and it caused marital strife. And then he had an affair, ended up divorcing his wife, marrying the other woman. And do you think his church fired him? No. Allowing sin stops a church from preventing the ruinous effects of sin. Sin always takes us down and down and down. One sin never stands alone unless it is confessed and turned away from. Because when we have that one sin, we have to lie, we have to cover up, we have to do this, we have to do, make another wrong decision, and the stuff just multiplies. And you know what? When you get all the way out here, God can restore you. There is no doubt about that. I've seen God do it. Wouldn't it be better to stop way back here and not have the ruin of sin? Mark it down. Sin never leads to good things. If you only remember one thing today, when you walk out of here, remember that. Sin never leads to good things. One commentator put it this way, a church that does not discipline a sinning member is like a person who has reason to believe he has cancer, but he refuses to go to the doctor because either he does not want to face the problem or he does not want to face the treatment. If he waits too long, his whole body will be permeated with the disease and it will be too late for the treatment to do any good. And we would call that person a fool. As hard as it is, we have got to care for our brothers and sisters and ourselves. We've got to be judging ourselves about sin before we're talking to anybody else about what needs to happen in their life. Because it leads to ruin. Number four, allowing sin stops a church from useful service. The principle is stated by Paul in 2 Timothy 2 when he says, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, and some for honor and some for dishonor. He says, in a, in a great house, you've got these really nice dishes made out of gold and silver. Then you have some that are made out of, of clay, like a clay pot or what have you. Some for honor, some for dishonor. If anyone cleanses himself from the dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. One of our temptations is to somehow think we can hang on to our sin and still do things for God that will please him. Sometimes we think that it's like a trade-off. Well, uh, I know I should get rid of this sin, but, you know, I'm going to do all these good things for God. And on balance, 
He'll see that I'm a good Christian. What happens, but we don't know it, is in the church as a whole and in individual lives, sin keeps us from pleasing God, period. No matter how many hours or dollars we spend on the church. That's why David said this. You don't desire official religious action, sacrifice, or else I would give it. You don't delight in a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, these you will not despise. God wants our heart. Um, you know, when it comes to singing a song of worship, God doesn't check the volume level. Boy, the church's really raising the roof today. He, he checks the heart level. I know there's a connection between the heart and the mouth, but he's checking in the heart to say, are those people singing from their heart? If we allow sin, that goes away. We can, we can put on a face and kind of look like we're doing something religious, but if our heart isn't with God because of sin, God's not being honored. Given the powerful, growing nature of sin and its terrible impact, what should our attitude towards sin be? Look back at verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 5. and Your glorying is not good. If it's wrong to glory about sin, what should our attitude be? I think the opposite would be this. Sin must be hated. Sin must be hated. Listen to these verses from Proverbs. Six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And the word abomination is like the strongest word in the Old Testament for God saying, I really hate this. I really, really, really hate this. That's what he's saying. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Now, God didn't give us that list to say, here's the big list, and you just need to avoid these things. He gave us that list to say, you know what? I hate sin. God hates sin. And so, if we would say, well, I want to I walk with God, then we need to take note of this. The fear of the, of the Lord is to hate evil. Now, I, I, there's a little phrase that... Uh, has been overused, but it's nonetheless true. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. When it comes to the church, somehow that has to be our attitude. We don't hate people. Uh, I, I don't hate those who, who live in homosexuality, for instance. Neither am I afraid of them. I'm not homophobic. But I will not approve of their sin. Because it has ruinous effects in their life. If I'm going to walk in the fear of the Lord, I have to be the opposite of glorying in sin. I have to hate sin. And that has to start, first of all, in my life. I have to see those things that are right and wrong and say, that is wrong. And I have to judge it in myself, first of all. And, and frankly, if I'm really judging my own sin, I probably don't have a ton of time to look at yours unless you come and talk to me about it. How do you, how do you hate sin? You hate sin by confronting it and confessing it. 
if, if somebody else is living in some blatant sin, somehow we have to want the righteousness of Christ and the joy of abundant life that he offers so much for them that we're willing to go to them and say, brother or sister, can I help you? You're struggling in this difficulty. Oh, in our American society, that is absolutely the wrong thing to do. And I'm fully aware that when you go to that brother or sister, they may not be very receptive. But it has to come from a heart of love. The Corinthians were proud of their church, and they were wrong to be so. (laughs) I mean, as we go through the rest of this book, at the end of it, you're going to go, man, those guys were messed up. But not only were they messed up in a number of areas, they were proud of who they were. And that's why God says, your glorying is not good. We should be proud of our church, but we should be proud of of the righteousness that is present, of the genuine ministry that goes on. And sometimes that's going to mean we have to be lifeguards. We have to be looking out for our brothers and sisters trying to help them walk in righteousness. Did you hear the uh, news story this week about a woman who got a a nice cup full of sweet tea at a Dickie's restaurant, I believe? And she took one drink and said to her husband, I think I just drank acid. And sure enough, she had. And they rushed her to the hospital. And Last time I read about the story, she she was in deep trouble. One of the workers mistook a cleaning product for a sugar syrup. I don't know how that happens. One drink sent her to the hospital. Friends, I think what God wants us to understand today when he says that sin is like leaven or yeast is this. There is no such thing as a little sin. If we want to honor God, every sin needs to be removed from us as individuals and we need to work to develop a culture as a church where where we are walking in righteousness together. Heavenly Father, help us. None of us are perfect and I'm saying us because I know my own heart and life. You are calling all of us to a greater level of godliness a greater level of righteousness. And that starts by us saying sin is not good and it has to be eradicated. Help us to do that. And Father, when we, when we see a need in our brothers and sisters, help us to have the utmost grace and love and kindness. Help us to care for each other so much that we help one another walk in you. I pray in Christ's name, amen.